Welcome to the Fiction Machine podcast. Fiction Machine is a website written by me, Grant Watson, and it explores the making of films and has a look at how what I think are good, interesting movies are built by the artists that make them. You can find the essays at www.fictionmachine.com where a new essay is uploaded at least once a month. This is the podcast version of the same site, so it's the same information, just in an audio format, so you can listen to it on the train while exercising. I'm not fussy. Instead of reading it off a computer screen or a tablet, mobile phone, whatever. Fiction Machine is published uh, thanks to the generous donations of Fiction Mechanics via Patreon. So for more information on how you can help fund the writing and presentation of Fiction Machine, even for as little as $1 a month, follow the link at the top of the Fiction Machine website. There's usually a really twee piece of music here. Did you need twee music? I didn't think so. From the late 1970s, the Walt Disney Studios went through a particularly bleak period. Their family films weren't finding the success in cinemas that they used to enjoy, and their animated films were in a creative doldrums as the studio's ageing animators started to retire, and shrinking box office led to reduced and restrictive production budgets. And with the release of Star Wars in 1977, it became clear that the simple, clean-cut family adventure that had been the studio's staple output no longer had a market, and that American youths were looking for more complex, or at least aesthetically striking fare. So with this realisation, Walt Disney Pictures entered one of their most unusual periods, abandoning their standard family films for darker and more risky projects. It's easiest to demonstrate the difference by comparing the live-action films that Disney made from 1979 to 1985 with the films that they made just ten years earlier, from 69 to 1975. The earlier period saw the company produce such hits as The Computer Wore Tennis Shoes, The Million Dollar Duck, Bedknobs and Broomsticks, Herbie Rides Again and The Apple Dumpling Gang. The latter period saw the company experiment with science fiction in The Black Hole and Tron, dark fantasy in Dragon Slayer and Return to Oz, and even light horror with The Watcher in the Woods. Generally speaking, these films weren't commercially successful, although many of them have developed strong cult audiences over the ensuing decades. And it should be noted that they're all generally high-quality, entertaining films. It simply seems that for the movie-going audience, the dissonance between the wholesome Walt Disney brand and the strange, dark content was just too great with which to cope. The company's live-action fortunes didn't really recover until the release of Ron Howard's Splash in 1984. Now, of the 17 live-action features released by Disney between The Black Hole in 1979 and Return to Oz in 1985, far and away the best film to my mind is Something Wicked This Way Comes. It's not a lightly creepy supernatural story for children, like the company's earlier film Watcher in the Woods. It's a genuine horror movie, the first such film produced by Disney, and really the last until the walking corpses started bolting the Black Pearl and Pirates of the Caribbean. That was in 2003. So Something Wicked This Way Comes, it's written by the noted science fiction author Ray Bradbury, and it's based on his own novel. It follows two boys in Greentown, Illinois in the 1920s, named Jim Nightshade and William Holloway. They visit a strange travelling carnival that's just set up outside of town, and they meet its ringmaster, Mr. Dark, played by Jonathan Price. The carnival's rides, however, are not what they seem, and pretty soon both boys are on the run from a malevolent supernatural force, and William's librarian father, Charles, played by Jason Robards, struggles to save them. Of the countless film and television adaptations of his work, Bradbury always cited something Wicked This Way Comes as his favourite. He once remarked, It has flaws, but it's darn good. Well, the first version of Something Wicked This Way Comes was a short story by Bradbury titled Black Ferris, and this was published in Weird Tales in 1948. Nine years later, 1957, Bradbury received a call from the actor and director Gene Kelly, who wanted Bradbury to watch his new experimental feature Invitation to the Dance and offer his opinion. The two eventually turned to discussing other projects, and the idea developed of adapting Black Ferris into a feature film script. So a 70-page treatment titled Dark Carnival was developed, basically an expanded storyline, and Kelly took it to each of Hollywood studios in the hopes of finding a backer. 
Each studio in turn rejected him. It seemed too strange a combination for Hollywood's premier song and dance performer to direct a dark fantasy picture that bordered on out-and-out horror. Bradbury eventually adapted the unused film treatment into a full-length novel, and once published in 1962, Something Wicked This Way Comes was a critical and commercial success, ultimately selling more than 18 million copies. In 1968, the director Sam Peckinpah expressed an interest in adapting Something Wicked for the screen, and he promised Bradbury that he would, quote, rip the pages out of the book and stuff them in the camera. Once again, however, and despite the novel's enormous commercial success, Hollywood's major studios were not interested. Another director who expressed an interest in adapting Something Wicked at this time was Mark Rydell, later to direct on Golden Pond. But again, the, uh, the attempt ended in the same ignominious failure. In the end, it was a proposal formed not by a director, but by an actor's son that would actually see Something Wicked make it to the screen. In late 1975, Ray Bradbury met Peter Douglas, the son of actor Kirk Douglas, who, like his father and his brother Michael, was keen to get in, getting into producing motion pictures. I really had no credits, admitted Douglas. I had no money and no idea of how to put it together, but I knew I liked it so much and I idolised Ray from reading his novels and stories, so I started talking to him. He's very accessible. Peter Douglas contacted Bradbury at the perfect time, since the screen rights to Something Wicked had only just lapsed after being held for several years by the producers Erwin Winkler and Robert Chartoff, then riding high on the success of Rocky. Douglas ultimately borrowed $150,000 from his father to purchase the rights from Bradbury and start shipping the project around the studios. Bradbury and Douglas's choice for director was Jack Clayton. He was already both well-regarded in Hollywood for his high-quality films, but also widely derided for being notoriously difficult to work with. A self-avowed, choosy director, he only signed on to direct films in which he had a strong personal interest. He once said, It's true I seldom make films. I don't seem to find material that I like all that often, and I won't work unless I do. At the time, Clayton had recently completed work on a high-profile adaptation of The Great Gatsby, and he was open to new projects. He met with both Bradbury and Douglas and agreed to come on board as director. Initially, Kirk Douglas had loaned his son the option money because he had an idea of playing the role of Charles Holloway, the librarian father. Clayton opposed this. He found the star's robust and iconic screen persona a poor fit for the mild-mannered librarian. And noting the director's displeasure, Kirk Douglas graciously stepped aside. The first draft of Something Wicked took Bradbury five months to complete, and needed to be pared down considerably. Bradbury said, The first script I handed to Jack was 220 pages. He made me cut it and cut it and cut it. After several rounds of rewrites, Bradbury managed to reduce the script down to 120 pages, telling the director, I can't cut any more. By 1977, Peter Douglas managed to get the interest of Paramount Pictures' new president of motion pictures, David Picker. And Picker brought with him a long record in supporting both quality films and box office hits during his earlier tenure at United Artists. And it seemed as if something wicked would be in good hands. Sadly, the film soon became collateral damage in an internal studio dogfight. The studio CEO, Barry Diller, started rejecting most of the projects Picker had brought in. Something wicked suddenly found itself back out on the street. When Jack Clayton was told by Diller that something wicked had been rejected, he was so angry that he broke three of the windows in Diller's office. He later explained, I'd worked on that screenplay for six months. I gave it to Barry Diller, who returned it to me within three hours, saying he was afraid he couldn't make the film. Now, it was impossible for him to have read the script in three hours. I wouldn't have objected to his response if the script had been rejected a few days later. I became acutely aware that his reaction had nothing to do with the script, but was due to his feud with David Picker. I was completely frustrated. Shortly after the film's collapse at Paramount, Jack Clayton suffered a serious stroke, which temporarily robbed him of the ability to speak. 
With Clayton seemingly unable to direct, Steven Spielberg expressed some interest in directing the film. At the time, his third feature, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, was about to be released, and anticipation within the industry was high. Given his previous success directing Jaws, Spielberg represented a virtual guarantee that something wicked would be produced. Every studio in Hollywood seemed keen to work with the young director, and he had free reign to select his next project. Sadly, Spielberg's initial interest in Something Wicked was eclipsed by a sudden interest in making the World War II comedy 1941. In 1981, Bradbury said, he sort of went off in the horizon somewhere, after promising to do it. Never came back, never wrote, never called, which is very sad. We recontacted him countless times and he doesn't answer. It's just bad manners. So in 1980, Walt Disney was well into its contentious upheaval. The black hole had been and gone, leaving a sizable financial loss in its wake. Current productions included The Watcher in the Woods, which was pulled from cinemas in mid-release to have its ending reshot, the unsuccessful comedy Midnight Madness, another sequel for the increasingly tired Herbie franchise, Herbie Goes Bananas, and the adventure film The Last Flight of Noah's Ark. The company seemed desperate for new ideas and quality projects, and Something Wicked This Way Comes appeared to fit the bill. Thomas Wilhite, then a vice president of production, recalled, David Ehrman, director of creative affairs, had come to Disney in 1980 from Fox and said that one of his favourite books was Something Wicked This Way Comes. I was not familiar with it, so I read the book. Then I discovered that Ray and Peter had written a screenplay and Kirk Douglas had purchased it. I called Kirk Douglas and expressed interest in it. Ron Miller, David Ehrman and and I all liked it. That was in the fall of 1980 and we began pre-production in September 1981. Due to the three-year delay between the film being dropped by Paramount and picked up by Disney, Jack Clayton's health had recovered sufficiently for him to return as director. The film was budgeted at $18 million, comparatively high for Disney, but still lower than recent productions like The Black Hole. As the shoot approached, Clayton became concerned that Bradbury's screenplay was too dark and unsettling for what was supposed to be a family-friendly movie. He hired the English writer John Mortimer, with whom he had worked with on other films, to give the screenplay a rewrite and generally lighten its tone. When Ray Bradbury learned of Mortimer's appointment, he was furious, taking Clayton's decision as a personal betrayal. He later said, end of the friendship, and I got him the job. Can you imagine? I was stabbed right in the heart. Despite his loathing for Clayton's new screenplay, Bradbury remained involved with the production and was a regular presence both on location and in Disney sound stages. To effectively create the 1920 American town of Greentown in Illinois, an array of buildings were adapted and constructed at the Walt Disney Golden Oak Ranch. Construction cost about $2 million and was supervised by the production designer Richard McDonald. An authentic carousel from 1918 was purchased for the film and fully restored to working order. Jason Robards was cast in the role of Charles Holloway. It wasn't his first encounter with something wicked. In the early 1970s, he had been considered for the role of Mr. Dark in one of the earlier proposed adaptations. But in this film, as the sinister Mr. Dark, Clayton cast the English actor Jonathan Price, whose acting had impressed him in a theatre production of Hamlet, although both Christopher Lee and Peter O'Toole had also been considered. Jonathan Price relished the character's unearthly, lyrical style. He later said he's the one character that was able to retain the narrative style of the book, whereas all of the others had to be written colloquially to be real. I can play it as real or as unreal as I choose to. From Something Wicked, Price launched a highly successful career in American films, later starring in films like Brazil, Jumping Jack Flash, Glengarry Glen Ross, Evita, and the Pirates of the Caribbean trilogy. For the role of the Dust Witch, sort of a sidekick to Mr. Dark, Clayton cast Pam Greer, largely based on a performance in Fort Apache the Bronx. He said, I wanted someone exotic and beautiful, someone who could convey the idea of a witch without resorting to the Disney concept of a hooked nose with a wart. To play the young protagonists, Jim and William, Clayton hired two newcomers, Vidal Peterson and Sean Carson. Carson was originally hired to play Will, but after feedback from Ray Bradbury, he was recast as Jim Nightshade, with Peterson taking on the part of Will. 
Something Wicked This Way comes, commenced shooting in September 1981. Tensions were high between Clayton and the Walt Disney Company. Clayton preferred to be left alone to direct his picture, and attempted to block the studio publicists and marketing staff from visiting the set. While this issue was temporarily resolved, the relationship between director and studio continued to degrade as the shoot progressed. Clayton said, I said to them when I started, I've never done a special effects film before, so please give me the very best people you've got. Well, that turned out to be three old men and some very antique machinery. I think it turned out well enough in the end, but it took a long time getting there. Despite Clayton's doubts, and what he says in that quote, Something Wicked ultimately benefited from several groundbreaking visual effects. One of the most expensive sequences of the entire film was the arrival of the carnival at Greentown. Upon the train's arrival, the entire carnival unfolded magically into place. The scene was created using state-of-the-art computer-generated graphics based on skills and technology that Disney effects workers had developed making Tron a year earlier. It was the first scene of its kind ever produced. And the film's musical score was composed by George Delarue, who collaborated on the earlier Clayton films The Pumpkin Eater and Our Mother's House. So once Clayton had completed a rough cut of the film, um, Walt Disney Pictures arranged for a test screening in July 1982, inviting a sample audience in off the street to watch the film and give the studio some feedback. Well, the screening results were profoundly negative. Thomas Wilhite recalled that he said the preview cards were just average or below. There was no magic to the picture. Things that worked fine on paper just didn't work on film. Disney's president, Ron Miller, didn't believe the film as shot could be successfully released into cinemas. He met immediately with Ray Bradbury to discuss what could be salvaged, and the two agreed that extensive reshoots would be required. Sets that had been torn down were rebuilt. Actors that had moved on to other projects were summoned back to the Disney lot. While Clayton remained present throughout the reshoot and post-production, something wicked was no longer in his hands. Ray Bradbury said, In the end, we spent $5 million redoing everything that Jack Clayton did wrong. Unofficially, I became the director of the film. I tried to pretend that I wasn't the director, but I was. As part of the reshoot process, the Delarue musical score was abandoned and replaced with one by the up-and-coming composer James Horner. The entire third act of the film was reshot and replaced with an entirely new climax written by Bradbury. The film's opening scenes were also changed completely, a new opening narration was inserted, and that magical unfolding of the carnival, which had been created at enormous expense, was left on the cutting room floor. The film's original release date in late 1982 was rescheduled for April 1983, and that left Walt Disney Pictures with no new film to release for the 1982 holiday season. Disney's marketing department ran through eight possible campaigns to launch something wicked, and of the two that tested the most strongly, one was simply to promote the film as a Ray Bradbury story. Tom Wilhite again explains, Even people who hadn't read him thought of Ray Bradbury as the symbol of fantasy. So Something Wicked This Way Comes opened in American cinemas on the 29th of April 1983, opposite Tony Scott's film The Hunger and Martha Coolidge's comedy Valley Girl. Despite Disney's best marketing efforts, it failed to find an audience. The studio was ultimately forced to accept a $21 million loss on the film. And combined with earlier underperformers like The Black Hole and Tron, Something Wicked made studio president Ron Miller's position untenable. The following year, he was forced out of his position and replaced with Paramount executive Jeffrey Katzenberg. Ray Bradbury said, The studio advertised it as too much of a horror film. You lose the people who don't want to see a horror film, while others coming to see a horror film are disappointed that it doesn't terrify them enough. And despite their earlier falling out, Clayton agreed with Bradbury. Possibly the major problem, he wrote, concerning the disappointing reception for Something Wicked was due to advertising describing it as a horror film. I think Something Wicked should have been advertised as a very classy fantasy picture. Well, despite its commercial failure, Something Wicked This Way Comes is a remarkably effective dark fantasy. Bradbury's novel emerges fully intact, and it stands as one of the most faithful literary adaptations of its time. The period small-town setting works brilliantly, while Mr. Dark's carnival is wonderfully creepy. 
One of the film's greatest assets is the strength of its two leads. Jason Robards and Jonathan Price are wonderfully contrasted. One's a quiet, humble, somehow small local librarian, and the other's a magnetic, seductive, and powerful magician. It's easy to focus on Price's performance, since it's the more flamboyant and theatrical of the two, but a closer inspection of Robard's acting reveals something incredibly strong and subtle. The two share the film's best scene as Dark confronts Holloway in the library, tearing one page after another from a book, each page representing another lost, wasted year of Holloway's life. The screenplay, even with Clayton and Mortimer's rewrites, showcases Bradbury's dialogue. It has a wonderful literary quality to it that, in some places, borders on the lyrical. It also adds to that gently creepy tone of the film. It's easy to see why test audiences responded so ambivalently. When one hears Disney, one has a certain image in their mind. While it's true that Disney films have never shied away from dark or darker themes, death, things like that, they've rarely seemed quite as unsettling as they are in this film. The first half of the 1980s was a difficult period for Disney, with a string of failed experiments costing the company tens of millions of dollars, and it would take several years and a string of smash hits to reverse Disney's fortunes. But if there was any consolation for such a taxing few years, it's this. I think Something Wicked This Way Comes remains one of the finest films that the Walt Disney Studios ever produced.